as we read uh, God's word together, I'm reminded was this morning of just the wonderful privilege that God gives us to, to study his word for me and for us together and realize that the value of this isn't simply in listening to something Mark has to say or even reading it together, but is asking God himself to speak into our hearts and minds. That's his intention actually with his power that it does surgery on hearts and minds. And God does that as we invite him to do it. And so I would just invite you to pray with me this morning as we begin this time to say, God, I want you to speak into my life in ways that are relevant and, and life-changing for me. So I would in, invite you to just tell the Lord, uh, I'm ready, and uh, help me to be ready, and point out to me what it is you have for me uh, from your word. So would you join me in prayer? God, we do thank you that uh, you provide to us a, a book filled with words uh, that are truths and uh, they're alive, and that the exercise of us reading and studying together is uh, to open our hearts and minds up to what you want to actually say to us that's relevant for today and the rest of our life. And so, God, I want to hear what you have to say to me. I want to know what it is that you want to just say, Mark, there's something I want you to hear. And God, I want, to, I want that to sink into my heart and my, my mind. And I know we're a church family where that same desire is there. So we're just telling you, uh, please speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last night I was watching an interview of the husband and wife of the Duggar family or Duggar family, uh, the 19 and counting uh, reality program, I guess, that perhaps you've heard about what has happened in the family and what is now out in the news. And uh, I, I guess the, the network is considering whether they're going to extend it because of uh, the scandal that has broken. And the husband and wife, the mom and dad, were talking about what happened. They described an episode that took place a number of years ago where one of their sons was found out and they had to deal with some things, tragic things with their family. And so the judge dealt with the issue and closed the records and healing has occurred along the way. And then through what is now a tragedy, there is just this open for everyone to see, for even the, the daughters who were victims of it, for it to all just come out what, what had been dealt with. It seems to me that there is this, there is this culture that we have of gotcha, we say, if, if, somebody, if somebody's done something wrong um, and we don't like them or it, we're going to just, we're going to just step in and, and do a gotcha in regards to that. And you just see the unfolding tragedy again as far as something that was terrible and tragic in the past comes back again and it's just over and over again in relentless pain. It not only happens in the, in the broad culture, but it happens in the church as well too. Just this past weekend, as a wonderful church in the Dallas area who last weekend got together, and this was in many um, uh, different places in the Christian press, where the pastor actually um, acknowledged how they had been handling church discipline. And the senior pastor described their approach as domineering in a handful of cases and said it was wrong and it was unchristian. Senior pastor said, we've sinned against some people and we're owning that before God and specifically before the people that we have hurt. Our desire is to be loving and caring and it's clear 
that we have not been. And so in front of thousands and thousands of people in this church family and for Christians around the United States and perhaps the world that follows them, there's this, there's this swallowing heart and saying, you know what, we blew it. There's another remarkable church in the Chicago area that a year ago the elders got together and they realized we have just done gotcha rather than anything that brings restoration. Uh, the stories go on and on and on about how do we do this and how do we do it well. In some cases, it's a desire to get someone and just kind of beat them up when they're down. In other places, it's a desire to just be, do it the way God says to do it, to take sin seriously. And, and how do you do that and how do you work it through? And all too often, the result of stories like this in the Christian community are these accusations that the church is filled with hypocrites and they point out to people who point out other people's sin and sin themselves. And so there may be some of you in this room that are actually saying, yeah, and, I, and I'm just really even wondering how I can respect the Christian community. And I'm, I'm just here, but I, I'm cynical about what the Christian church is like. And for those of us that are part of the Christian family, we're just asking this question because it means a lot to us. How can I handle difficulties and tragedies and sin in a Christ-honoring way? And so it's interesting that in the context of our <coughs> culture, and even in the Christian community in the United States, we're wrestling with these same things in the middle of us being in this series where Paul gets to Galatians chapter six and he says, let me tell you how God wants us as Christians to handle things when brothers and sisters fall and struggle and churches try to figure out how to do it. Now Paul has set up Galatians six by already talking about, and we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, the call to walk in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to let the Spirit of God be the one that guides us. And he does say that it's a walk, which means it's something that progresses and we walk into deeper spiritual maturity. It means we don't start there. We give our lives to Christ. We become people of faith, but we've still got all of this stuff that was a part of our life and embrace that we've just got to ask for God to get rid of in our lives. We're not perfect right away. We're still really messy and progressively through the course of our life. God brings one of those issues up after another and deals with one and then another and then another. And so it's a journey. It's actually a walk. Don't, don't, don't expect to be perfect the moment you give your life to Christ. And don't expect that of others as well. It's not an immediate transformation. It's progressive growth. It's growing into Christ-likeness. And there's another aspect of walking in the Spirit, and Paul's talked about it in the end of chapter 5, and it's actually even embedded in what we read when we looked at the first 10 verses of chapter 10, and it's to walk in humility, to not be deceived, to be aware of it, to be characterized by humbleness in the midst of it. And the reason for humility, the need for humility, is because the way the Spirit does its work is in the context of the Christian community. That's how the Spirit works, and we grow up into Christ-likeness. Transformation occurs in the context of community, and so we better humbly relate to each other or it won't take place. I mean, isn't it true that when we're caught in a sin, our natural tendency is to just pull back and withdraw, right? I don't want anyone to know. I don't want anyone to hear, and we just isolate ourselves from Christian community because of the embarrassment, the, the shame of it, or whatever it might be. There's just a sense of, I'm going to isolate myself. And some of it might come from embarrassment 
or shame. Other part of it might come from just the natural desire to be self-protective because perhaps you've seen people in the context of the Christian community knowing it and the story turns out really bad. And you say, I'm going to protect myself from that. So I'm caught in sin, but I'm, I'm not going to do this whole thing in the context of Christian community. And the reason why lives are still broken is because we have this tendency, we have this sense of, I'm not going to share this with anyone. God will do his work in you to restore the broken things in the context of the Christian community. And so how do we do that? With the Spirit and walking in humility. And Paul describes what the elements of that are along the way here we see in chapter 6. And I want to just isolate a couple of aspects of this before we spend time in communion. The first thing we see in verse 6 is this exhortation that Paul gives, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Actually, in verse 1, the, the beauty of the Greek language, it actually says more than the English says in this case. And Paul is essentially saying this, friends, expect to be caught in sin. Expect it, it's going to happen. Because that's the way this sentence is laid out. If someone is caught in sin, actually in the Greek there are more hints to it and more of a sense of, and it will happen. It points to the high probability that church members will sin. So what do I say to myself if I'm living with humility and with honesty? Expect, there's a high pri- probability that I will sin and I will need help along the way. That's what Paul's saying. Expect it. There's a high probability that you will, be, you will sin, you will be caught in sin in such a way that you will need help along the way. We sing that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Peter talks about it in his own life, the devastation that takes place. These are disciples. These are people who walk with Jesus for three plus years, some of them. And they're still, later on in their life, dealing with the propensity to wander, the probability of sin and the need for help. That's why Paul says in verse four, each one should test their own actions. Know this, expect it among others and even in your life as well. It's likely that Paul was referring to the uh, uh, character traits of of, uh, uh, the flesh in chapter five, verse 19 through 21 that we talked about last week, those four ways to ruin a life. to to live as you please. I'm gonna do whatever I want to with my life and with my body. To chase fantasies or idols, to be attracted to this one thing that just gets all of our attention and all of our resources and it's less than God. So in the end, it disappoints us, but in the meantime, it distracts us and takes us down. To ruin our life by using other people rather than loving them to ruin our life by ignoring reality, not to see our own rebellion, which is what Paul is leading into here when he talks about humility. Uh, See reality and see the tendency towards rebellion. In verse 26, let's not become conceited. C.S. Lewis says, the one who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and a number of other uh, pieces, he said this, the devil is perfectly content to see you growing in purity, in bravery and in self-control, provided all the time that he's setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. 
So the devil is more than happy for you to be happy about growing in purity and growing in bravery and growing in self-control. As long as with that he can set up in you this throne of pride. Look at me, I'm doing great. Just as he would, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, just as the devil would be quite content to see your warts cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment. You see, the cure for hypocrisy is not perfection, it's humility. The cure for hypocrisy is not perfection, it's humility. Expect people to be caught in sin. Expect the possibility in your life as well. And the second imperative Paul has here is this, restore the people that are caught in sin and restore them gently. Restore them, why? Um, Because they're caught in sin. There's a focus here not only in the fact that a person has made a sinful, selfish choice, but they've now been trapped by it. The claws have caught them and, and they can't get away from it. And there's a sympathy of those people really associated with this because although they might have made a selfish, reckless, whatever it is, choice, um, now they're stuck there and they're caught there. Satan has used this in a way that doesn't allow them to be able to walk away from it. Uh, Satan here is the enemy, right? Um, They need help in breaking the bondage of sin in their life. Who's going to be there to help them with that? And it is bondage of sin in their life. They have been caught. And so this doesn't mean that we shrug it off and say, we get it, it happens. We don't just simply shrug it off, but, but we recognize the source of it. It's a person who said to Beth and myself early on in our marriage something that has really been helpful for us. says, your spouse isn't the enemy. The devil is the enemy. You do have a problem and you need to work it through, but the enemy isn't the other person that you're in the argument with. Satan is the enemy. And he wants to catch you and trap you in this. And the way he's going to do it is you're going to see that other person as the enemy. And what happens then? The church pulls away from one another and we just hope the other person will either get well on their own or walk away. Restore people, Paul says, that are caught in sin. There is a predator out there and he will go after us and there will be episodes in our life where we find ourselves in a mess. And it's not like it just happens to those who are brand new in their walk with the Lord. There are these seasons or these stages of life. Someone gets a job promotion. All of a sudden, in the midst of the excitement in it, there's a sense of, boy, I'm actually a pretty remarkable person. Or a sense of entitlement that comes with it that we didn't even notice when we first had the promotion. We were grateful for, to God for what we got and we didn't even notice the sense of entitlement that crept in along with it. You see, it can, it can just happen. Or it's that, that new set of friends that you find yourself associated with and you, you love being a part of them and you're so thankful for them. Thank God, thank you that you gave me friends. And then you realize that in the context of that group of people, the, the currency of that relationship is sarcasm. And you just kind of join on in and then you realize, wow, in the midst of this new stage of friendship I have in my life, 
I'm finding the attitudes of my, of my heart are not what they want to be. Or is it the tendency to go towards things like alcohol or whatever it might be, and you find yourself sucked into those things, and it's all brand new, and it happens so surprisingly. Or it's that brand new cable channel package that you received, and you found out that there are things in that channel package that capture you and imprison you. You see, it can just happen. And it does happen. Expect to be caught by sin and then restore the people around you that are in places just like the places you've been in or might be in in the future. This is needed because people become caught and it's also needed because every person is important to the church. And their importance will be there and will be necessary again. Paul uses the word here, restoration. If someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. He doesn't use the word correction. He uses the word restoration, to return to what it is. And this word is used in the original language of bones that are broken. A bone is broken and what does one do? One does physical therapy so that that bone can heal and it can be restored and it can be used again for what it was intended to be in the first place. When nets are ripped and they're mended or restored, the purpose of the restoration is that the nets can be used in the same way they were used before they were ripped and destroyed. And so there's physical therapy that takes place with the expectation that one day those bones will be usable again. The same thing is true in regards to spiritual therapy, if you want to call it that. Spiritual therapy that causes spiritual maturity that people might be re-equipped for service so that the broken members can once again work properly and perform vital functions for the benefit of the whole body. If one member is broken, Paul says elsewhere, the whole body suffers. And there's this danger that we have that when a person is broken and messed up that they're done with significance in the body of Christ. And we have people around us that are characterizes broken limbs because we haven't followed Paul's mandate and say, okay, there's the brokenness. You who are spiritual, restore that person and allow that person to walk back into full relationship with the family of Christ Jesus. What is it for some of you who just bear this weight of the sin you were caught in in some season of your life that has led you to believe the lie that you no longer can have a place of significance to strengthen the body of Christ. Where does that lie come from? Whatever it was that was broken, God's intention is to mend it and he wants us to be a part of that mending so that the whole body of Christ can be strong. If we set people aside, it harms the church. 
It harms us. It harms our children. What a wonderful thing for our children to see examples of what it means for God to be gracious, and he inspires us to be that way. For our children to see compassion when there's brokenness. And for our children to see the miracle of what the Holy Spirit does in broken lives, in lives caught in sin in the past, restored through fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the present, and bringing glory to God in the context of the church. Friend, if you think you are no longer on the team because of what has happened in your life, that not only devastates you and devastates us as a family, but is so contrary to what is actually true. God restores. That's what he does. What does a church do with sinners? A church invites them closer and restores them gently. A church family engages in lives and shows those broken lives a picture of the future in front of them. And yeah, when we get through this time, let me show you again how God will use you again for his glory again. We have... um, Uh, A number of years ago, the carpet was removed and there was just a concrete floor before we put this carpet in. And I was reminded this week of the time when we all gathered together in here and took markers and we put prayers and names of people we were longing to see come to deeper relationship with Jesus all the floor. They're under your feet. Those prayers and those names, they are under your feet right now. And I was reminded of words that are right outside the doorway there. The words to that hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. Right outside the door. That is what God has called us to be. Come on in here. We know what the devil does. We know what it is to be caught. And we've benefited from restoration. We're going to be that place. That's who we want to be. And then the third element behind this, it's not simply that um, people are caught and that every person is important in the church, but it's that, that it's possible. It's possible through the Spirit's fruitfulness in our church. The occasion of sin is the opportunity for Spirit-led people to display the fruit of the Spirit in order to bring healing to the sinner and strength to the church. Did you notice here that the concern that Paul has in this letter is not the sin, It's the treatment of the sinner. That's his concern for the Galatians and for the church of Jesus Christ. Moral failure should not surprise or be considered fatal in the life of a healthy church. And then Paul goes on to say, just two more things here. One is this, watch yourself. This is not trivial. It devastates, it ruins lives. So we need to be careful as we walk along. And in verse 7, he says, God can't be mocked. A man reap what he sows. And this is warning and encouragement as well. There are three rules of reaping and sowing. The first is this. A person reaps what they sow. So whatever it is you invest in, if it's the spiritual life, you will reap spiritual life. If it's 
the, the impulses of the flesh, you will reap the impulses of the flesh. A person reaps what they sow. What you plant is the harvest. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. That is true as well. Whatever it is you plant, it grows, and you reap more than that. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow, and you reap in a different season than you sow. Oh, it looks like I'm doing fine. No problem here. Friends, wait. The law of sowing and reaping is that you reap in a different season than you're sowing. The counterpoint to it is this, is I'm just doing all of these things to love and show grace and to be forgiving and all of that and I don't see any fruit of it. Wait, wait, wait. Can you wait for that? And then Paul says in conclusion, he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in, in sowing goodness. Think about it. Just real quick here. When was the last time you did something really good for somebody in our church family? Don't stop. Don't get tired of that. Be engaged in our lives together. And so we're going to gather together for communion right now. And there's a really beautiful part of what the church has done historically over time. When those that are serving the bread and the wine say to the people that are coming up, oftentimes they will say, Remember the body of Christ broken for you. Remember the blood of Christ shed for you. And that's the power of the bread and the juice that we use during this time that's coming out for us. But the people would respond oftentimes. Someone would say, remember the body of Christ which is broken for you. And in some traditions, the response of the recipient is to say, and also broken for you. You see, it's true. That's who we are. We all need the body of Christ broken for us. We all need the blood of Christ shed for us. We're all in this together. Remember the body of Christ broken for you. And just look at the person that's serving you and say, and also for you. Isn't it just a wonderful family we live in that we all benefit from who Jesus is and the gift that God has given us? And then when they say to you, remember the blood of Christ shed for you, you can say together with him, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of your grace towards us, for the hope that's found in your spirit given to us, and for the opportunity for us to be reminded again that we do this in fellowship with one another. God, may this be a place of grace because you are a God of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.